one true chapter by chapter podcast going through the Song of Ice and Fire one chapter deep. I'm your host, Jeff, better known as Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 169th episode of the Not a Cast titled Fallen Kingdom. An analysis of a Storm of Swords Catlin 3 in which you just gotta admit that the good times just keep on rolling for the Starks, don't they? I mean, other Catalan chapters look happy and sunshiny compared to this one. This is, even by Catalan standards, this is a dark, dark chapter. I can't wait. Yes, as always, we cannot wait for these dark, dark chapters. What does that say about us that we love these, like, the worst Catalan chapters in the series? The saddest chapters in all the series. What does it say about us? That we are content, well-adjusted people. That's what it says. I'm going with that. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Moving on. This episode, as always, is brought to you by our Not A Small Council. Our Hand of the King, Wolfman Zack, Grand Master Tim Bob, Troubleshooter of Systems and Designer of Circuit Boards, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark M., Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaster June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, War of the North, Nelson Hammer, Prince of Dragonscombe, Scarlet the Other Red Woman, and Mistress Whispers, Lord Micah, the Quilled Lion, War of the West, Herald the Golden Tooth, Master of the Bainfort, and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gem That Was Promised. Lord Jake assisted to the hand of the king, Lady Zena Valyrian, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dan, Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, War of the East, Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, The Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, a Priest of the Drowned God, Sir Sorcedelica, Sugar Tits Dent, the Troctolite Warrior, Laura Pitchett for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Beyonce's favorite stand, Herald of Sharon, Batter, Bastard of Chromatica, Exalter of Black Lives, Defender of Trans Lives, Rainbow Commander of the Ds and Gentlemen's, and the Nauticast, non binary, not an army. Haldover, the way for T. Well, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H Town, Veneris of House Golgarian, the first her name, Princess Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Avort, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devity, the Great Game of Thrones, Portraits of the Realm, Lady Reels of the Seven Kingdoms, Bunner Paints, the Maker of Drawings, and the Michelangelo, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Lord Adam T. Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpion of the Red Field, Defender of the Letter of Kim, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle. Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face, Lesbians, Sir Josh No, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, Grave Rob Stark, the Cadaver King and Horror of Heron Hall, Hold Up, the Holder of Cups, Sir Tim, the Knight Who Was Guided by Voices, Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, Part 2, Lady Anna, the Lovely Castellan, Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Squire Matt S., Future Matt S., the one who bring balance to the kingdoms, Lord Kyle, Lord Samuel Seaworth, Sir Max, Lord Commander of the Constitutional Guard, Lady Ivory Dane, Aspiring Noble Author in the Seven Kingdoms, Lady of Starfall, Warrants of the South, and Patron of Free-Wheeling Bisexuals, Lady Jamisa, She Who Suggests that Coconuts Migrate, Lord Christopher Arendelle, Official, Ice Master Deliverer, The Valiant Pungent, Reindeer King, Keeper of Feisty Pants, and Prince Consort to His Ginger Sweet Love Queen Anna, Lord Sir Septon Brothers, Sir Grizzly Adams, the King's Justice, War of the Kingswood, and the Sheriff of the Seven Kingdoms, Lord Anonymous the Second, Lord Tyler, the Prince that Promises to Wait Patiently for the Winds of Winter, Lord D.B., Sister Winter, Hopeful Romantic and Run Repentant Shipper, Lord Monsef, the Severed Head of a Targaryen Prince, Brotting on the Council Walls, and our newest small council patron, everyone give a warm welcome to James of House Keen, Lord of the Forest City, Admiral of the Cuyahoga, Warden of the Western Reserve, who joins the Not a Small Council after many months as a High Lord Patron. I am so happy I get to keep just sniping all of the people names that you can announce every <laughs> single week, it feels like. It's great, isn't it? So thank you to all of our small, not a small council patrons, and welcome to the small, not a small council, James of House Keen. 
Thank you, as always, to all our small council patrons, and special welcome to James of House Keen. Thanks so much for joining us in the higher tier, and now Jeff gets to read off your wonderful title. I'm so jealous. Not really. <laughs> I, I would be jealous, but no, it's all good. <laughs> our spoiler warning, as we say in every episode, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Dunkin' Devils, histories, interviews, the Winsmere sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Sir Eric, the Guilty Undertaker, a Sworn Sword patron, who asks, Thus far in the story, the others have mainly acted by stealth and ambush, ever lurking in the shadows and striking vulnerable targets with overwhelming force. It's what we see at the end of the chapter in Samwell 1, as well as in the Game of Thrones prologue, in the attack on Mormont's Tower, and later on with Sam and Gilly. It also seems to line up with Tormund's descriptions from A Dance with Dragons and Cotter Pike's ominous letter from Hard Home. In some ways, the Fist of the First Men fits this pattern. The Night's Watch were a small, isolated force in a position they couldn't easily retreat from, far from any possible aid, and they were set upon without warning. Yet the attack on the Fist also involved hundreds, if not thousands, of whites, far more than have been involved in any other single attack. What do you think we'll see moving forward? Will the others eventually gather all of their whites in one place to form a seemingly unstoppable army like we saw in the show, or will they continue their ambush tactics just on an ever-larger area? Or will they do both? So what do you think about that, Jeff? What do you think the, the others' military strategy, so to speak, would be later <laughs> in the story or when they get south of the wall? I think north of the wall, what we can see is that they do pick on small, isolated bands of people. Whether it's the wildlings that Tormund is going to talk about in to John in the later Dance of Dragons chapters, or Cotter Pike from that letter that that uh, that Sir Eric mentions, I think we're like I think the reason for that is that the others are looking to kind of sap the strength of the human humans who are north of the wall and add to their own number. But at the same time, they don't want to kind of sap their own strength or utilize too much of their main forces because the north ultimately and the the lands north of the wall really are kind of a sideshow the main prize is south of the wall i think it really comes through the name winter fell as we have talked about at some length and it's been a while since we talked about this but to, to refresh everyone's memories we, we are believers in the theory that winter fell the castle winter fell is where winter fell where the possibility that the others struck there that was where the hammer blow sort of kind of fell in in ancient ye old times I think that is the main objective of the others, again, to kind of reverse what happened at the end of the long night back from thousands or tens of thousands or however many thousands of years it was when the others actually struck. So I think they're conserving their strength north of the wall, trying to enhance and build up their strength. I think the I think the fist of the first men, as much as it was a massive defeat for the for the others, I do think that maybe the the whites they, there was more whites that were lost than gained through all the bodies that were kind of killed and then taken over by by the others so maybe it was kind of like I'm, I'm just I'm saying a lot of maybes here but maybe it was kind of a tactical blunder by by the others that they ended up losing more than they actually gained from attacking the fist but I also think too and this gets back to a theory I wrote about a long long time ago and I mean I had a great discussion back before we were doing this podcast about the reason why the others attacked the fist of the first men and that is that there is a possibility that they attacked the Fist of the First Men because that was a place where Jorman's Horn was being held. Mm -hmm. And at Jorman's Horn, they could assault the wall and take the wall out without having to utilize an ice dragon, utilize the, well, they're going to utilize the horn anyways, have Euron utilize the horn, have some sort of unreliable person in the form of Euron Greyjoy utilizing the horn. 
And so they looked at the that possibility that they could sacrifice as many people as possible or as many whites as possible so that they could reduce their eventual casualty load trying to cross the wall because they can't take it by force. They need to take it out because it is made by magical implements, as Melisandre talks about later in A Storm of Swords. So they had to take the risk of losing a lot of their own numbers in order to lose fewer numbers when they, they had assaulted the wall itself and headed towards Winterfell, which was their main objective. So a lot of maybes, a lot of hypotheticals, a lot of theories. What do you think, sir? I, I think, well, it's interesting that we really don't get a sense, even really fully from the show, exactly how many whites the others have. Because, you know, they've been hunting the wildlings and some Night's Watchmen for some time, but we don't know how long the zombies can, you know, last if they need like a, a new batch every so often to replace the stale ones with fresh ones. We don't know where they're keeping them all, presumably up in the land of always winter, but we also see some whites buried in the snow right outside Blood Raven's cave, suggesting they're keeping kind of a constant watch on that. We don't know if they have any more kind of caches of, of, of dead people <laughs> hidden around the place. I think it's the uh, north of the wall is basically just a hunting zone for the others. Yeah, it's basically just a playground where they can snipe people off as as they wait to get south of the wall. And I think I agree with the theory that they showed up in force on the fist in part to get the horn of winter because if they're just looking for bodies, you know, there's way more among the wildlings than there are among those uh, couple hundred uh, Night's Watch Rangers. So yeah, I think you know, I think I think it will be similar to the show in that yeah, it's gathered around Winterfell and that. We, in terms of the overall size of the other's army, we might just get a, a glimpse of it, just just a, a hint, a flash, a, a couple of visuals. I don't because you know it's it's not what 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 specifics we get might be through Bran, and he's more likely to get a kind of a, a more magical, uh, mystical sense of things. So I think a, a concentrated force bearing down on the north is probably what we're going to say. That would be my guess. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much to uh, Sir Eric for the question. If you'd like to ask us uh, questions we have to answer here in the Not A Cast podcast, you're welcome to become a sworn sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash notacastASOIAF, where you can also get show notes, bonus episodes, merch, access to the Not A Slack, and shout outs at the start and end of every episode, as well as weekly mini-sodes that we record before each episode. Yes, indeed. And we hope that all of you non-patrons enjoyed our recent analysis of Theon Greyjoy in A Dance With Dragons. If... And I think it's to say because you like what you heard and want us to cover Theon's The Winds of Winter sample chapter, consider becoming a patron today. So as we've been doing every single week, we are keeping a running count of how close we are to attaining that goal. So at present, we jumped up a fair amount from last week, where now we are at 918 total patrons, just 32 patrons away from unlocking the first Theon The Winds of Winter episode. So we're getting closer and closer and closer. So consider so consider supporting our show today at patreon.com forward slash not a cast a s o i a f but enough about patreon when we last checked in with catlin rob stark returned home in triumph having defeated the lancers in the west and had joyful news he was a married man now let's let the good times roll in this synopsis of a storm of swords catlin three they carried the corpses in upon their shoulders and laid them beneath the dais a silence fell across the torchlit hall, and in the quiet, Catelyn could hear Grey Wind howling half a castle away. He smells the blood, she thought, through stone and walls and wooden doors, through night and rain. He still knows the scent of death and ruin. Boy, these Catelyn chapters are sure getting more and more cheery, aren't they? Catelyn Stark stands at Rob's side, thinking that the bodies of the dead boys on the dais could, in fact, be Bran and Rickon. The blonde boy was trying to grow a beard. His throat had been cut while he slept. His brown-haired cousin fought to survive given all the defensive wounds across his body and arms especially. 
but the stabs to his chest and stomach had done him in, but the rain had almost washed him clean. Rob Stark had his crown on, and he stares and stares and stares. Catelyn wonders if he's seeing Bran and Brickon in their bodies. She might have wept, but there were no tears left in her. The dead boys were pale from long imprisonment, and both had been fair against their smooth white skin. The blood was shockingly red, unbearable to look upon. Will they lay Sansa down naked beneath the Iron Throne after they killed her? Will her skin seem as white, her blood as red? From outside came the steady wash of rain and the restless howling of a wolf. Edmure was in the room, too. He had been woken from sleep. Catelyn hopes that Edmure's dreams had been good because reality fucking bites. All around were the lords and bannermen of Rob Stark. Sir Raynal Westerling and Rolf Spicer were there, too. But Jane Westerling was not present. Rob spared her of this sight. She might have known these boys and played with them when they were all children. Catelyn waits a long time for Rob to speak. And then King Rob Stark orders small John Umber to tell his dad to bring the prisoners in. Great John Umber marches Rickard Carstark and his henchmen into the room. And Catelyn notes that the Umbers and Carstarks looked alike, big men with big beards. She could only spot the difference in that the Umbers carried spears where the Carstarks had their weapons taken away from them. The North is hard and cold and has no mercy, Ned had told her when she first came to Winterfell a thousand years ago. Five, said Rob when the prisoners stood before him, wet and silent. Is that all of them? There were eight, rumbled the great John. We killed two, taken them, and a third is dying now. Rob studied the faces of the captives. It required eight of you to kill two unarmed squires? Edmure says that the Carstarks murdered two of his men as well. But Rickard Carstark, bound by rope, is not seemingly bothered by it, says that it wasn't murder. It was vengeance for his boys. His words rang against Catelyn's ears, harsh and cruel as the pounding of a war drum. Her throat was dry as bone. I did this. These two boys died so my daughters might live. I saw your sons die that night in the Whispering Wood, Rob told Lord Carstark. Tion Frey did not kill Torrin. Willem Lash did not slay Eddard. How then can you call this vengeance? This was folly and bloody murder. Your sons died honorably on a battlefield with swords in their hands. According to Rickard Stark, he did this because only blood can pay for blood. Rob angrily asked if he means the blood of children. Absolutely, squires die all the time. Yeah, in battle, fuckface, not by murder. Rob demands that Rickard look at the bodies of the boys. Lord Carstark looked instead of Catelyn. Tell your mother to look at them, he said. She slew them as much as I. Catelyn put a hand on the back of Rob's seat. The hall seemed to spin around her. She fell as though she might retch. My, my mother had not to do with this, said Rob angrily. This was your work, your murder, your treason. How could it be treason to kill Lannisters when it's not treason to free them? Asked Karstark harshly. Has your grace forgotten that we are at war with Casterly Rock? In war, you kill your enemies. Didn't your father teach you that boy? Finally stirred to anger at Rickard calling Rob a boy, the great John punches him in the face, which is very satisfying. Rob tells great John to stop and Rickard Karstark begins to mock Rob. Yes, Lord Umber, lead me to the king. He means to give me a scolding before he forgives me. That's how he deals with treason, our king of the north. He smiled a wet, red smile. Or should I call you the king who lost the north? Your grace. Great John Umber demands the opportunity to put Rickard Carstark on a spit, but then Bridget Tully throws up at the door Aragorn in Helm's Deep style, at least the movie style, and marches in with Tully's soldiers behind him. He takes a knee in front of Rob, and Catelyn notes that Uncle Brynden was very serious about something. So Rob directs Brynden to tell him what's up in the audience chamber. He wants Rickard Carstark kept here. Hang the rest. Even the dead ones. 
don't throw their bodies into the river to spoil the water. One of the captives dropped to his knees. But, but, but mercy, sire, I, I, I killed no one. I only stood at the door to watch for guards. Rob considered that for a moment. Did you know what Lord Brickard intended? Did you see the knives drawn? Did you hear the shouts, the screams, the cries for mercy? I, 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 I did, but I took no part. I, I, was, I was only the watcher, I swear it. Lord Umber, said Rob. This one was only the watcher. Hang him last so he may watch the others die. <laughs> That's just one hard motherfucker, and I kind of love it here. We'll unpack that later, though. But now Rob wants Catelyn and Edmure to hear what Brynden has to say. The storm continues to crash as they head outside, and Cat wonders if that's a metaphor of a kingdom falling. In the audience chamber, in the audience chamber itself, a small oil lamp is the only source of light as Rob takes off his crown. Now alone with his kin, Brenda tells everyone that the Karstarks are gone. All of the fighting men. There were camp followers, wounded soldiers, and servants who were left, but everyone else is gone. And they're not reforming. Instead, they're heading off in search of Jamie Lannister. Rickard promised a reward to anyone who found Jamie with marriage to Alice Karstark. Rob states that 300 mounted men were gone from the camp, but Catelyn, she feels sick and guilty about it all. Lost by me. By me. May the gods forgive me. Catelyn did not need to be a soldier to grasp the trap that Rob was in. For the moment, he held the riverlands, but his kingdom was surrounded by enemies to every side but east, where Lysus sat aloof on her mountaintop. Even the trident was scarce, secure so long as the Lord of the Crossing withheld his allegiance, and now to lose the Karstarks as well. Edmure says everyone just needs to, you know, keep their mouth, keep their traps shut, or else Tywin will hear of it. Catelyn realizes what Edmure is saying, and so does Rob. Sort of. He asks whether Edmure intends for Rob to be a murderer as well as a liar, and Edmure says, uh... They're not going to lie, not by commission anyways. They're going to keep quiet until the dead return to life, Brendan says. No, the truth left with the Karstarks, asshole. I owe their father's truth, said Rob, and justice. I owe them that as well. He gazed at his crown, the dark gleam of bronze, the circle of iron swords. Lord Ricker defied me, betrayed me. I have no choice but to condemn him. Gods know what the Karstark foot with Bruce Bolton will do when they hear I've executed their liege for a traitor. Bolton must be warned. And Brendan reminds Rob that Karstark's son was once held at Harrenhal. Maybe he'll be super cool with Rob killing his dad? Question mark? No, probably not. Even if he was cool with it, he couldn't openly be that way around his men or he'd lose them. The North remembers. Edmure's next suggestion is that Rob pardon, I mean, hold Karstark hostage. Edmure doesn't really like the idea as Karstark had several of his bros killed, but why not chain him up and hold him hostage to Harry and Karstark's good behavior? They need the Karstarks to keep their hopes alive. What hope? Rob let out a breath, pushed his hair back from his eyes and said, we've had naught from Sir Roderick in the North. No response from Mulder Frey to our new offer, only silence from the Eerie. He appealed to his mother. Will your sister never answer us? How many times must I write her? I will not believe that none of the birds have reached her. Her son wanted comfort, Catelyn realized. He wanted to hear that it would be all right, but her king needed truth. The birds have reached her son, though she may tell you they did not. If it ever comes to that, expect no help from that quarter, Rob. Lysa was never brave. When we were girls together, she would run and hide whenever she'd done something wrong. Perhaps she thought her lord father would forget to be wroth with her if, she could not, if he could not find her. It is no different now. She ran from King's Landing for fear to the safest place she knows, and she sits on her mountain hoping everyone will forget her. Rob says he'd love the Knights of the Vale to be part of the war, but if they won't do it, all he needs is for Lysa to open the gates, and then he could sail his army from Gulltown to White Harbor and move on Moat Kaelin from the north and drive the Ironborn out of the north in six months. But the Blackfish says, ain't gonna happen, man. Lysa's too scared to let an army into the Vale. 
This, to put it mildly, puts Rob Stark in a hashtag mood. The others take her then. Rob, Kirsten, a fury of despair. Bloody Rickard Karstark as well. Theon Greyjoy, Waterfrey, Tywin Lannister, and all the rest of them. Gods be good. Why would any man want to be a king? When everyone was shouting, King of the North, King of the North, I told myself, swore to myself that I would be a good king. As honorable as father, strong, just, loyal to my friends, and brave when I face my enemies. Now I can't even tell one from the other. How did he get all so confused? War records fought at my side in half a dozen battles. His sons died for me in the Whispering Wood. Tion Frey and Willem Lannister were my enemies. Yet now I have to kill my dead friend's father for their sakes. He looked at them all. Will the Lannisters thank me for Lord Rickard's head? Will the Freys? Nope, says Bernard. Spare Karstark, says Edmure. Rob reached down with both his hands, lifted the heavy bronze and iron crown, and set it back atop his head, and suddenly he was a king again. Lord Rickard dies. But, 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 but why, said Edmure? You said it yourself. I know what I said, uncle. It does not change what I must do. The swords in his crown stood stark and black against his brow. In battle, I might have slain Tian and Willa myself, but this was no battle. They were asleep in their beds, naked and unarmed, in a cell where I put them. Rickard Karstark killed more than a Frey and a Lannister. He killed my honor. I shall deal with him at dawn. Chapters like this, I know if this is going against something I've said in the past, but chapters like this make me wish we had more of Rob Stark and the Westerlands chapters in this book. Because we have none. What a fucking badass man. The next day dawns gray, chilly, and rainy as rivermen and northmen bear witness to Lord Karstark's execution. His men hang from the castle walls as umbers bring Rickard Karstark to the chopping block. Long Lou waited beside the block, but Rob took the poleaxe from his hand and ordered him to step aside. This is my work, he said. He dies at my word. He must die by my hand. Lord Rickard Karstark dipped his head stiffly. For that much I thank you, but for naught else. He had dressed for death in a long black wool surcoat emblazoned with the sunburst of his house. The blood of the first man flows in my veins as much as yours, boy. You would do well to remember that. I was named for your grandfather. I raised my banners against King Aris for your father and against King Joffrey for you. At Oxcross in the Whispering Wood and in the Battle of the Camps, I rode beside you and I stood with the Lord Eddard on the Trident. We are kin, Stark and Karstark. That kinship did not stop you from betraying me, Rob said. They will not save you now, Neo, my lord. Catelyn notes that this is true as the Karstarks descend from Carlin Stark, who was once a younger son of Winterfell, who won land where he built, quote-unquote, Carl's Hold, or eventually became known as Carhold. Hence, how the descendants of Carlin Stark became Karstarks. This Karstark says that Rob is a kinslayer, but Rob, but Rob calls Rickard a traitor and tells him to kneel again. Karstark kneels, saying the gods will judge Rob. Rickard Karstark, Lord of Carhold. Rob's lifted the heavy axe with both his hands. Here in the sight of gods and men, I judge you guilty of murder and high treason. In my own name, I condemn you. With my own hand, I take your life. Would you speak a final word? Kill me and be cursed. You are no king of mine. The axe crashed down, heavy and well honed. It killed in a single blow, but it took three to sever the man's head from his body. And by the time it was done, both living and dead were drenched in blood. Rob flung the poleaxe down in disgust and turned wordless to the heart tree. He stood shaking with his hands half clenched and the rain running down his cheeks. Cuts forgive him, Catelyn prayed in silence. He is only a boy, and he had no other choice. Catelyn doesn't see Rob for the rest of the day, and Brynden takes a team out to search for the missing Karstark men. But he's pessimistic that he'll find many, or really any. Once Beefish leaves, Catelyn goes to Hoster's bedside. Maester Vyman tells Catelyn that her dad is about to die, but he's still fighting for life. The maester agrees, but says, you know, maybe it's time to be at peace and yield to death? To yield, Catelyn thought, to make a peace. Was it her father the maester was speaking of, or her son? Later that evening, Jane Westerling visits Catelyn. Catelyn welcomes her as your grace, but Jane once just wants to be called Jane. Anyways, 
why is Jane here? She's here about Rob. You see, he's miserable and she doesn't know what to do. Ah, well, killing someone is hard. Jane has a very Westerman response to this. I, I know. I, I told him he should use a headsman. When Lord Tywin sends a man to die, all he does is give the command. It's easier that way, don't you think? Yes, said Catelyn. But my lord husband taught his sons that killing should never be easy. Jane realizes the cultural distinction then and turns to the topic of Rob not eating. And then he spent the day writing a letter before burning it. And now Rob is looking at maps. She doesn't know what he's looking for and he hasn't changed out of his wet clothes. What should Jane do? Tell me what I should do, Catelyn might have. Tell me what I should do. Catelyn might have asked the same. If her father had been well enough to ask, but Lord Hoster was gone or near enough. Her Ned as well. Brandon were gone too, and mother and Brandon so long ago. Only Rob remained to her. Rob and the fading hope of her daughters. Sometimes, Catelyn said slowly, the best thing you can do is nothing. When I first came to Winterfell, I was hurt whenever Ned went to the godswood to sit beneath his heart tree. Part of his soul was in that tree. I knew a part I would never share. Yet without that part, I soon realized he would not have been Ned. Jane, child, you have wed the North as I did. And in the North, the winners will come. Catelyn tried to smile. Be patient. Be understanding. He loves you and he needs you. And he will come back to you soon enough. This very night, perhaps. Be there when he does. That is all I can tell you. Jane listens and says she'll do just that, but she's heading back to Rob. She'll be patient if he's still looking at his maps. Catelyn says, okay, but Rob needs one more thing, an heir. The girl smiled at that. My mother says the same. She makes a posset for me, herbs and milk and ale to help make me fertile. I drink it every morning. I told Rob I'm sure to give him twins, an Eddard, and a Brandon. He, he liked that, I think. We, we try most every day, my lady, sometimes twice or more. The girl blushed very pearly. I'll be with the child soon, I promise. I pray to her mother above every night. Sabelle Spicer, you bitch, I hate you. Anyways, Catelyn will pray for Jane. When the girl had gone, Catelyn turned back to her father and smoothed the thin white hair across his brow. An Eddard and a Brandon, she said softly. And perhaps in time a Hoster. Would you like that? He did not answer, but she had never expected that he would. As the sound of the rain on the roof mingled with her father's breathing, she thought about Jane. The girl did seem to have a good heart, just as Robert said, and good hips, which might be more important. And that is the synopsis of A Storm of Swords, Catlin 3. You know, this chapter reminds me of growing up, sitting at a window, watching a heavy, steady rain outside. And what I'm saying for all of the characters in this chapter is that, really, everyone needs a grilled cheese sandwich and a bowl of ramen soup to kind of keep warm. What did you think, sir? Everyone needs some comfort food, but it's not coming. The big meal is going to be the Red Wedding, and that is the exact opposite of comfort <laughs> food. So Catelyn is probably my favorite POV character in the first three books, and I think this is like the definitive Catelyn chapter, the one that best captures the tone and imagery that makes her story so compelling. It's a full-on gothic tragedy, all dark shadows, howling wind, and bloodstains. It feels like the stones of Riverrun are bleeding, like the world itself is fatally wounded and giving up its ghosts. Now, Rob's kingdom doesn't really collapse because of what happens here, the Red Wedding is coming, regardless of what Rickard Karstark does. But this chapter feels like a microcosm of the fall of the Starks, a self-contained symphony of doom that expresses the whole. This isn't my favorite Catalan chapter in Storm, that is of course the last one at the Red Wedding, but it's a close second. Yeah, it's hard to disagree with you. This chapter just is brimming with emotion, which I think makes this very memorable on reread. Take the politics aside, it's the emotion that stays with you. And I think 
part of that emotion is found in the tragic aspect that we've been uncovering for Catelyn Stark's story in A Storm of Swords, because the reader feels the fingers of the author tightening around the neck of the Starks in Catelyn III. In military terms, the Karstarks rolling out compounds the hopelessness of the Starks holding out against the might of the North. In moral terms, Rickard Karstark's murder of the Lancer boys forces Rob to consider whether Really, his side is any better than the rolling war crime caravan known as Tywin Lannister and the army and his army of the West in the Riverlands. It's a terrible situation for the Starks, and it's only getting worse by the hour. But even as the noose, fingers, whatever in this metaphor tighten, George continues to offer hope. False hope, as it turns out. But there's a hope that the Starks can endure and that Rob and Jane will conceive. I think this is just a standout chapter by a lot. I love chapters like this. I love the mood. I love this idea that I have in my mind of Rob Stark as a Western sheriff. And I especially love the atmosphere which kicks this chapter off in such hopeless terms. Yes, I especially agree about the mood and the atmosphere. That's what this chapter is all about. This chapter takes place on a dark and stormy night, which is a cliche for a reason. It's the perfect environment for a mood of dread and despair. The deluge of rainfall and gray winds howls merge into one sound for Catalan. One great expression of pain, like nature's heart is broken. Rob's bronze crown still shines, but darkly, George writes, as if infected by the night. Shadows hide his eyes as though he's already dead, the rage and sorrow within him spilling forth like a rain of black tears. It feels like the Starks and Tullys have fallen into a well, or a gravity well, a black hole, and they're watching the last lights wink out all around them. Even the memory of happiness is fading. Catelyn looks at Edmure, sleep still showing on his face, and wonders if he was having sweet dreams. Back in Clash of Kings, Catelyn was still dreaming of her family reunited. She had that sweet dream at the beginning of her second chapter in Clash about everyone back together at Winterfell. But now, even the fantasy is dying. All her dreams are nightmares now. Everything has fallen apart, as I was saying in the last Catelyn chapter, leaving behind only what she describes as the scent of death and ruin. George is drawing from a variety of literary and theatrical predecessors in crafting this chapter's singular mood, especially in the Gothic tradition. The stormy atmosphere and the sense of subterranean violence bursting through to the surface reminds me of Henry James' novella Turn of the Screw. Grey Wind's spooky senses make him a supernatural figure of sorts, the equivalent of the ghost's haunting screw or something like the haunting of Hill House. King Lear is another obvious reference point. Sticking with Shakespeare, there's also the titular storm in The Tempest. You could compare Catalan III to the dry, sterile thunder of Eliot's The Wasteland. That same sense of dread that winter this time is going to be eternal, and that spring will never come again. Then there's the constant storm in Wuthering Heights, reflecting the tumult of that novel's central relationship, and the emotions surge very similarly here. And there's a passage I love at the end of James Joyce's story The Dead that evokes the same melancholy mood as this chapter. His soul swooned slowly as he heard the snow falling faintly through the universe and faintly falling, like the descent of their last end upon all the living and the dead. But you can set all those references aside and still feel the resonance of this chapter, because it draws a lot of its power internally from this specific story. Catalan Three begins with corpses. George doesn't tell us at first whose bodies those are or who killed them. All we know is that they're dead. So they could be anyone. They could be Bran and Rickon, as Catelyn thinks, her own lost little ones. They could be Rhaegar's kids, Rhaenys and Aegon. Tywin had presented their corpses to Robert on the Iron Throne like a blood sacrifice, as Ned remembered back in Book 1. Lord Tywin had laid the bodies beneath the Iron Throne, wrapped in the crimson cloaks of his house guard. That was clever of him. 
The blood did not show so badly against the red cloth. The little princess had been barefoot, still dressed in her bedgown, and the boy... The boy... Ned could not let that happen again. The realm could not withstand a second mad king, another dance of blood and vengeance. He must find some way to save the children. But Ned is dead, and Robert too. The wheel keeps turning, and no one ever saves the children. Here are two more for the stranger to take too soon. Catalin sees that the blonde boy was trying to grow a beard. He was trying to become a man, trying to grow up. But like Waymar Royce at the beginning of the story, he looks so young in death. He died in his sleep. His cousin wasn't so lucky and fought his killers, gaining only more wounds in the process. In a particularly effective bit of imagery, George describes his wounds as tongueless mouths, as though they would cry out like gray wind, but have been forever silenced. Robert looked down on Rhaegar's dead children and said he saw only dragon spawn, the hardening of the heart necessary to kill, the denial of humanity to others that wound up hollowing out his own humanity. There is no such detachment for Catelyn. It's replaced by the wretched empathy so common to tragedy. She sees her own children in their faces, not only Bran and Rickon, but Sansa, who she fears will be killed in revenge. She also mourns for the boys on their own terms, thinking that oh, they might have played with her new daughter-in-law Jane when they were younger. Only now do we finally learn who these boys were. The squires Tion Frey and Willem Lannister, taken captive at the Battle of the Whispering Wood in Book 1. They rode into battle under the Lion Banner. They're the enemy. But by slow rolling the reveal of who they are, George has already engaged our horror and grief. It doesn't matter who they fought for. They died too young. The mention of Jane only further emphasizes that. The Westerlings were Rob's enemies too. He took their castle by force. Yet now, one of them is Rob's wife and queen. So they can't pretend that these boys are just lion spawn, to borrow Robert's term. Rob lays with lions after all. His own kids, if he'd ever had any with Jane, would be part lion spawn. The borders of the war have been broken. Here Rob stands mourning his foes, and now he must reckon with the betrayal of his friends. And it disturbs Catelyn how hard it is to tell the two apart. Men move aside from the traitors as though treason isn't an action, but a disease you could catch, a cascade effect that could infect the kingdom and bring them all down. As Catelyn thinks, they all look alike, the loyalists and the traitors. Some on both sides are wounded. Just as the dead bodies could be anyone at first, the killers could be anyone. It's not like all the Karstark men are uniquely corrupt. If the war had played out differently, it could have been the Umber men in chains and the Karstark men bringing them before Rob. The disease is in them all. The North is hard and cold, Ned told her when she first arrived, and has no mercy. He was the exception, not the rule. I think that's one of those aspects about A Storm of Swords that I appreciate the most. It's showing how the rule works across domains. Readers are naturally sympathetic to the North as they start the series as the good guys who got wronged by the bad guys. Yet when we look at the North as a whole, a broader, a broader picture emerges, and it's not an entirely sympathetic portrait. The good guys, in quotation marks, have just committed child murder. And what that does to the Stark cause is devastating. The Starks have been those proverbial good guys, the wrong party, the people who have had injustice committed against them multiple times. The Lannisters illegitimately seized the throne, committed mass, committed mass atrocity in the Riverlands, and have done mass child murder and enslavement also in the Riverlands. The information of war and the narrative is one where the Starks were positioned as good. But that narrative phrase really with what happened out in the Westerlands, with the Starks pillaging the land and driving livestock away from the small folk. 
and it really frayed with the hanging of the sex workers as seen in Jamie's first chapter in A Storm of Swords. Now, the Stark side is committing child murder, just like the Lancers. Of course, the child murders and sex worker, and sex worker murders are not a coordinated campaign of terror directed by Rob Stark, maybe by Bruce Bolton. The terror and murders are not part of a coordinated strategy as seen in Tywin Lannister's War Crime Council session at the end of A Game of Thrones. But what are the optics of the buildup of crimes for the quote-unquote good guys? I'm reminded of, during the Second World War, how the Nazis highlighted Allied and especially Soviet atrocities that are committed on the Eastern Front. The Katyn massacre of 20,000-plus Polish army officers and intellectuals by the Soviet NKVD in 1940 was utilized by Nazi propagandists to show how the Allies were no better than they were in the conduct of the war. Obviously not an actual objective true statement that is propaganda. More than that, the propaganda hardened the rationale for the German population to fight to the last man, woman, and child when the Allies invaded Germany proper in early 1945. Now, I think this is all interesting at some sort of esoteric level, but there isn't a coordinated Lancer propaganda campaign to show how the Starks are just as bad as the Lancers. The Lancers aren't like flooding the zone with shit is what I'm trying to say here about the Starks. They're kind of not quite at that point. But none of this also sways any Riverlands or Northern houses to turn, to turn to the Lannisters. Those houses that do turn are somehow even worse than the Karstarks, as will be demonstrated by the end of the book. So no, all the optic stuff is kind of ap- academic when compared against the major houses of Westeros. What isn't academic, though, is the reaction of the small folk. They've seen the slaughter, they've seen the murder, and they've decided to stop taking a side in the conflict. Enter the Brotherhood of Banners to fill the void left by the noble combatants in this War of the Five Kings. Harwin put it best in Arya's third chapter in A Storm of Swords. We mean your brother no ill, lady, but it's not him we fight for. He has an army all his own and many a great lord to bend the knee. The small folk have only us. As we'll discover throughout Arya's A Storm of Swords chapters, the Brotherhood of Banners have more than stepped into the void. They are the only force that's fighting for the small folk. I think the easy summary would be to say, well, then it's the Brother Without Banners who are the clear heroes of the story. No one else. Well, while it's true that the BWB act heroically and that the Stark Tully side looks more gray, especially by the end of A Storm of Swords, Catelyn 3, I do lean towards the position that, that there can be a heroic side whose individual members commit atrocities. Moreover, as we'll discover in A Feast for Crows, the BWB themselves turn away from their original noble mission to safeguard the small folk and towards vengeance against the phrase, especially. Ultimately, I think... It's kind of less about like the class distinctions and less about where you're positioned in the war and whose side you're fighting for in the war itself. It's not that the Karstarks are fighting for the Starks and that's why they turn evil. And more of the case, I think that ultimately it's that war sours men's souls that exposes the raw evil lying just under the surface. Rickard Karstark's murder of these two squires and the women at the inn who are murdered expose that evil in the northern side. And now the question is, what do those in authority do now? I think the comparison to the Brotherhood is interesting. We'll definitely have to when we get to that great chapter where Sandor is given his trial beneath the Hollow Hill. We'll have to compare it to Rickard Karstark's trial here. And then, yeah, by the time you get to the end of Feast for Crows and Thoros so crestfallen and world-weary talking to Brienne about how he he barely remembers justice, that feels kind of like what Rob is feeling here. So even though I think the Brotherhood exists in part to resist Rob's side, you see a, a similar arcs within kind of a different political context. And I think that's, that's uh, very well done on George's part. But yes, with the mood established, George now draws our focus to the meat of the chapter, the evil deeds of Rickard Karstark and Rob's response to them. Lord Karstark has been breaking down in the background ever since his sons died protecting Rob from Jamie at the Whispering Wood. He seemed to reach the tipping point in the last Catelyn chapter, when he returned to Riverrun to find that she had freed Jamie. Now he has lashed out lethally, killing unarmed hostages, 
and Rob as his king must determine his fate, acting as prosecutor, judge, and ultimately executioner. Rob begins by giving voice to the emotions that we're probably experiencing reading this. Horror and anger at the sheer abject awfulness of this. It took eight grown men to kill two teenagers. For all of Lord Rickard's tough talk, Rob immediately exposes him as a coward. As Edmure points out though, they came in force to get past his guards, and their deaths are also on Lord Rickard's head. That's the first charge he responds to, saying killing those guards was not murder, because they got in the way of his vengeance, which is just asking to die. Sir Rickard's cowardice isn't primarily physical, it's moral. He is dodging responsibility for his own actions, flinching away from his own cruelty. And Rob cuts through his bullshit with admirable clarity. I saw your sons die, on the battlefield, with swords in hand. These squires did not kill them, so you can't spin this as avenging their deaths. This was just murder. You can tell how weak Ricard's position is by how he keeps blurring the central distinction between dying in battle and just being stabbed in your bed. First he says is that all that matters is that his sons died. Jamie cut them down, these two are his kin. Blood pays for blood. Nice and simple. But he also justifies himself by saying that squires die in every battle, so why is this a big deal? Immediately he's, he's taking advantage of the war context that he just said wasn't important. So Rickard has no consistent ethical position. He starts from the presumption that he was in the right, and then adopts whatever argument will allow him to back that up. In war you kill your enemies, Rickard declares. Hard to argue with that, at least in the abstract. But then he undermines his argument by citing Ned, saying he should have taught Rob about killing your enemies. Ned would have condemned Rickard even more forcefully than Rob, given his history that I was talking about earlier. Rickard keeps dodging the case against him by engaging in whataboutism. Well, how can I be a traitor when Catelyn isn't? She freed Jamie without your consent and got off scot-free. She started us down this lawless path. She started all this. That accusation hits Catelyn like a punch to the gut. She reels and wretches because she thinks it's true. These boys died so my daughters might live. It's all part of the sense of doom unfolding, Catelyn's belief that even her attempts to save lives will only cause death. And the imagery is particularly powerful here. Karstark's words are described like the beating of a war drum, Catelyn's throat that the phrase will slit is dry as old bone. At a literal level, I think Karstark is full of shit. Like when Catelyn freed Jaime, he didn't call her a traitor, he said she robbed him of his vengeance. That was the most important thing to him. Ever since his sons died, he has been in this to kill Lannisters, not serve Rob. If those two things uh, lead away from each other, he will always choose killing Lannisters. Again, he's just grabbing whatever argument suits him. But on a more poetic, even cosmic level, his argument has the ring of truth to Catelyn. It feels right. This is the reaction to her action, like we're following Newton's laws. The mood in the room goes beyond what Karstark did and why. It's not happening in isolation. It's one link in the chain of Rob's downfall. That's why Rickard calls Rob the king who lost the North. He is demonstrating that he has lost all respect for Rob as an authority figure. Power resides where people believe it resides, and Rickard Karstark doesn't believe in Rob Stark anymore. Those dead bodies are about sending that message as much as they are about vengeance. So when he talks about Catelyn's actions or Rob losing Winterfell, he's not justifying what he's done so much as making the case that this whole King in the North business is over. That's the mood in the room. That's why the Great John is so eager to distinguish himself from Karstark, calling him a traitor, knocking at his teeth, asking permission to kill him. The Great John used to be a source of comfort and strength, but no longer. He's clearly overcompensating for his own dread about their position. 
And this is also why Catelyn calls the crash of thunder outside the sound of a kingdom falling, a concept that ties all the chapter's ideas together. Catelyn is sensing, with her usual tragic foresight, that she's part of a pattern she can't control, even though her actions are part of it. It's the fall, the semi-biblical fall that claimed her baby boy Bran, the fall from innocence and grace. There is no good to be had here. There are no winners, only losers. I think what makes this scene all the more dynamic is that Rickard Karstark isn't some sort of prophet. He's not embedded with his prophetic green sight or can see in the flames and see what's happening, going to ultimately happen to Rob Stark. He's simply a man who lost, quote unquote, everything. Sorry, Harry and Karstark. I'm sure you're important. And, is, and Alice as well. And is soothing his wounds by spitting venom at Rob. At some level, Rickard Karstark knows what Rob Stark is going to do. He's been around Rob the King, which is that distinction that's made a lot in this chapter, Rob the Boy versus Rob the King, for a long period of time. So he's aware that he's about to die. And as we've talked about in Catelyn 1 and really back even to A Clash of Kings, Rickard Karstark really likely hoped to suicide by Lannisters out in the West. Denied that, he'll get himself killed by Rob Stark by being the most obnoxious person around, telling it like it is. The sad truth about this chapter is that Rickard is right. This ship is going down, not by the fault of Rob Stark, not entirely anyways, not because his cause is unjust, not entirely anyways, but because the narrative demands it. And even Rob at his most righteous can't dispel that doom. He orders the Karstark men hanged, even the one who was only keeping watch. He's just as responsible, Rob says, and he has a point. The man knew what they would do, the plain horror of it, and went along anyway. Making him watch the other men die has a sense of evening the scales, of making clear the consequences of his actions. But it can't contain the rot. I think of Danny when she gets to Slaver's Bay, when she takes the city of Marine. She executes one slaver for every child that they had nailed up to point her way to the city. In isolation, it's justice. But in context, I think it demonstrates a failure to think in systems, as we see play out in A Dance with Dragons. How do you stop someone else from just replacing them? How do you create a city that can work differently? You've set people free. Okay, that's great. How do you keep them free? Similarly, Rob is applying Ned's model of justice the best he can. It doesn't stop the problem from growing. We were introduced to Ned executing Garrod from the Night's Watch, who bore witness to the White Walkers. Ah, but he deserted, and that truth gets cut off with him. These well-intentioned guys, trying to keep things together, backing up their words with actions, run headlong into the reality that human beings are flawed and frail, and our problems can't necessarily be dealt with one-on-one. -on -one. Things are just getting out of hand for Rob, and like his mom, he doesn't seem to know how to contain them. And in my synopsis, I talked about how this scene is like Rob Stark performing frontier justice and how satisfying it is to read that. It provides catharsis that wrongs are being righted, that good is punishing the bad. And that kind of frontier justice angle of the darker westerns is kind of a part of a storm of stories that will become more prominent. And I'm reminded of uh, this, 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 this Maester Mary, one of our, our high lady patrons and also the, the co-host of the Learned Hands podcast, made this really great point when we were doing the episode about the... Uh, Brotherhood Without War Crimes or something like that. The Brotherhood Without Banners and their War Crimes. But she talked about how this dynamic plays out with the BWB hanging the bloody bumpers at the capture the set at the sept of the Storm of Swords, Arya Six, where like freaking like Thoros is telling like the Red God to like roast their souls in hell as they're swinging up from the tree. And you're like, yeah, it's, that's that's pretty metal. That's super awesome. Unfortunately, though, the catharsis of that scene from later in Storm of Swords, and especially here from Rob Stark's Frontier Justice, doesn't really hold for long. Like you were saying, we're seeing one individual wrong being righted, maybe. 
But the larger degree of injustice in Westeros is the one that's holding sway. Like his father, Robb Stark is the exception to the rule, executing his own people who commit war crimes against enemies. <sighs> I guess Stannis is an exception too for gelding his men who rape wilding women too. There, are you happy, Frank? Leave me alone. <laughs> but as we'll see later, Tywin Lannister ostensibly didn't order the rape and murder of Illy of Dorne, which is a lie, but he didn't punish Amory Lorch or Gregor Clegane for their actions. Now, Tywin is full of shiz, we'll talk about it at length later in A Storm of Swords, but the point I'm driving at here is that most of the lords wouldn't do anything to war criminals in their own ranks. Rob Stark does, but that's not a uniform code of justice. It's the exception, and it's going to take a lot more work to set things to right. And maybe, and I really hate to say this, but, you know, maybe things will never actually be set to rights. I think, again, that's the the possibility that Danny increasingly has to face down in Slaver's Bay. Maybe there's really nothing I can do about this. And that's a very hard pill for her to swallow, and the same is true for Rob. And then the Blackfish arrives with news that makes everything worse. The Karstark soldiers have abandoned Rob. They did so slowly, patiently, in a well-planned fashion to prevent Rob from realizing until it was too late. And this is what I mean when I say that Rickard's actions are about rebellion as much as revenge. This didn't happen in the heat of the moment when he was just getting sad and angry and thinking about his sons one night. This was a strategy that Lord Rickard thought through and then implemented. He has sent his men hunting after Jamie, promising the hand of his daughter to the killer. It's like a fairy tale, something Sansa would have loved before the fall. Bring me the head of the wicked Kingslayer, and you'll rise from common soldier to a seat at the table with your blushing new bride. George is showing us how that storybook imagery can be weaponized in a political context. The happy ending as nothing more than a tool of revenge. We're stuck here with the hole they leave behind, visualized in the marks Rob's crown makes on his temples. His head lies heavy. The burdens of power are becoming too much, ironically because his power is melting away. Catelyn again thinks that she lost her son, these men, because if it's her fault, then at least she has some control over her own life. But the situation she describes is beyond any one individual. It increasingly looks like Rob is just plain screwed. Isolated by his enemies, abandoned by his allies, and his way home is blocked by the phrase. Yeah, and just to talk about how big of a deal it is that the Karstarks abandoned Rob, let's return back to a Game of Thrones brand six and talk about the strength of the Karstark host that showed up at Winterfell. The Karstarks came in on a cold, windy morning, bringing 300 horsemen and near 2,000 foot from their castle at Carhold. Catelyn Three only mentions the cavalry, and for good good reason, and that is that the Karstark foot is down with Bruce Bolton down in Harrenhal, while Rob took, while Rob took the Karstark cavalry out west. Now, 300 cavalry probably don't matter that much right on initial blush but it is roughly 10 percent, or maybe even more of rob's remaining northern force that he has under his direct command meanwhile the bulk of the karstark infantry likely participated in the battle of duskendale which happened just before this scene chronologically as evidenced by harry and karstark going missing in the battle and then being mentioned as a prisoner of the lancers in the feast for crow's appendix all of this was before the karstarks likely found out about rickard karstark's execution as we're going to find out at the Red Wedding, those surviving Karstark men under Bruce's command will take part in the slaughter at the Red Wedding on the side of the Boltons. Though it's not mentioned why they took part in the Red Wedding, it's a pretty easy inference that they were adapting the position of Rickard Karstark and taking vengeance on Rob Stark for his execution of their liege lord. And the death of these hostages further weakens Rob's position with both the Lannisters and the Freys. Edmure realizes this and wants to try and keep it quiet. Cover it up and move on to avoid any reprisals. 
But I think the Blackfish is right. The dead are dead. It's going to come out sooner or later, and probably sooner, given the Karstark men now spreading across the countryside. Edmure is trying to close the barn door after the horses have already escaped. Rob, meanwhile, is concerned less with the practical matters and more with the personal. What has been done to me and what I owe others. And you could say that Rob is being self-indulgent here, but like his mother, I think he wants to do the right thing and just has no idea what that is. For Rob, it's like everything has flipped upside down. He feels he owes justice to the families of the dead squires, aka his mortal enemies, the Lannisters, and his jilted former allies, the Freys, who trampled his banner on their way out of River Run. Rob has made a new enemy out of Harry and Karstark, or so he assumes. The Blackfish is again the shrewd pragmatist in the room, wondering if Harry might secretly be glad to have his father dead. Hey, he's a lord now, he's moving on up. But Rob thinks that unlikely. The North doesn't just forgive and forget. No, the North remembers. And that has become a fan-favorite line since the Dance with Dragons, in which it becomes this kind of mantra or even like a code word that suggests that the Northern Lords are secretly still Stark loyalists. But here, first time the phrase appears, it suggests something darker. That the North is obsessed with revenge, not just Rickard individually. After all, why is Rob even here? Why is he still fighting this war? Because, as he says in the next Catalan chapter, the Lannisters killed his father. Rob is nobler than Rickard, but vengeance drives him too. I think it's such a fascinating point to talk about like the North remembers as in this darker context, because in A Dance with Dragons, it's not necessarily a rallying cry for like, let's restore the Starks. It's like, let's kill the people who, kill, who killed true. the Starks. That's true. It's, it, is, it remains this symbol of vengeance for these Northern bannermen who are secretly loyal or likely secretly loyal to the Starks. And they are about to, at least by the start of The Winds of Winter, as we'll cover hopefully in our Theon, The Winds of Winter sample chapter uh, analysis that we did cover recently in our Dance with Dragons Theon analysis. That will be uh, something that's, you know, they enact a lot of bloody vengeance on the phrase and eventually probably the Boltons as well. And, and I do think like here, Rob is not talking about Northern independence or a series of reforms he's going to enact as the king in the North. Instead, Rob frames his response as taking vengeance for dead old dear dad. Rob is, and I mean this sincerely, nobler than Rickard Carsirk and Tywin Lannister. And the whataboutism of Northern versus Lannister war crimes is not kosher. I mean, look, Lannister war crimes are directed by Tywin Lannister to occur. Rob Starks, the ones that are happening on the Stark side, are occurring not by Rob's directive, but by those individual lords underneath Rob Stark's banner. However, some of this kind of... Weirdly feels to me like a, a pale mirror of Stormstone's Tyrion III and the small council scene therein. There we saw that the great lords of the south are dividing their spoils and planning for the end of the Stark and Baratheon causes. They didn't overlay their, their claims and aims with a shred of justice or doing the right thing. They were just taking the spoils of war. The light mirror comes from Rob's rationale of continuing the war to avenge his dad. Now, I think there are a lot of reasons to stay in the war against the Lannisters. They stole the throne, they rule illeg illegitimately through Joffrey, and have committed mass atrocities in the Riverlands. But Rob doesn't mention any of those reasons. Rob is acting emotionally here in continuing the war against the Lannisters. These reasons are really utterly sympathetic. I'm not arguing that. They resonate emotionally, and maybe if Rob wasn't acting emotionally here, he could articulate just war reasons to stay fighting. That he doesn't is not to necessarily take a swipe at him, but it raises concerns about why the North remembers, why the North keeps fighting. And beyond that, you have to ask the question, can vengeance for Ned, actual vengeance, be reasonably attained? Not at this point, and that's kind of what Rob is processing. He's beginning to realize the catharsis he longed for isn't going to happen. 
As Catalan says, anger and despair are at war in his voice. The anger's driving him on, the despair's the recognition that the anger isn't going to lead anywhere. Rob can't even rely on his own family. As he says, support from his aunt Lysa would change the course of the war overnight. The armies of the Vale would more than make up for losing the Freys and the Karstarks, and even if they're not willing to actively fight the Lannisters, they could allow Rob to sail home, rather than having to deal with the Freys and then try to take Moat Caelan from the Ironborn, which is a, an uphill task to say the least. This is Rob's last hope, to salvage not only his kingdom, but his sense of self-worth. Catelyn recognizes that her son is looking to her for comfort, trying to regress back to the womb like Lysa and Sweet Robin. But Catelyn is different than her sister, and recognizes that her king needs the truth more than her son needs comfort. The truth, for Catelyn, is that Lysa is a coward, and always has been. Now, she still doesn't know the full truth about Littlefinger. That's really motivating Lysa's behavior. From Rob's perspective, though, it doesn't really matter why Lysa's refusing to help him. All that matters is the refusal itself. Rob finally breaks down and delivers a monologue that I think is his most emotionally resonant moment. Rob is often underrated as a character, especially relative to his siblings, and I get why. He's not a POV. We don't get access to his intimate thoughts and fears and desires like we do with his siblings. And, of course, he vanishes from the page for most of book two, which deprives uh, readers a chance to emotionally connect with him there. But Rob is often framed as dull, right? As uninteresting. He's just a one-note stubborn jock who just walks into his own death. And I think there is a lot more to him than that. What we're seeing with Rob here is the same thing that happened to Robert. The fantasy ideal of the good king with his righteous rebellion against bloodthirsty tyrants, winning battle after battle, his legend spreading until everything catches up and the bill comes due. With Robert, it was like a slow deflation, right? It was air hissing out of a balloon. We saw only the end result, and then we're given hints as to what he was like in his prime. With Rob, we're seeing it happen in real time, and it feels less like air escaping through a little hole and more like someone just stepping on the balloon and popping it immediately. Rob knows that's what's happening, and it's breaking his heart. He's so full of anger and despair because he believed so strongly in what he was doing. He remembers the moment they crowned him, the moment of hope, and now we learn what he was thinking. He was promising himself that he would do the right thing, be a good king, be just and honorable and true, and now he can't even tell his friends from his enemies. Everything got confused. Everything is more complicated than he ever anticipated. For me, this is extremely relatable. Ned made a promise to Lyanna, but Rob made a promise to himself and feels like he broke it. And I remember moments in my life when I promised myself I would do better and then failed. You feel this crushing weight that it was all for nothing. The past led to this worthless present and there is no future you can see. The seconds tick by unbearably and you're still yourself, the last person you ever wanted to be. It's worse even than your friends turning to enemies. You have become your own worst enemy, and there is no escaping yourself. Part of the general tragedy of humanity is that we try so hard to fill that hole with any number of things, and none of it seems to work. Look at Rob. He's young, handsome, a king with a beautiful bride, and he is completely miserable. As he says, why would anyone want to be king? Again, the Robert comparison. That's basically what he told Ned over and over again in book one. Why would anyone want to be king? This is a thesis statement moment for George. He has shown us Westeros ripped apart by the question of who the king is, and now shows us, arguably the best of them, the most well-intentioned one with the most justifiable cause, and even he is sick of being the king. It hasn't made him happy, and it hasn't avenged the dead. All it is to him now is a terrible decision that he must make. 
It makes me think of Viserys demanding to be crowned right before Khal Drogo does so in the worst way possible. It makes me think of Stannis seeing a vision in the flames of his crown burning him, transforming him into ash. There is nothing waiting at the top of the fiery ladder. There is no endgame that's going to make these people whole. Because of Rob's crown, he must now behead the father of boys who died for him, on behalf of families that will not thank him for it, as the Blackfish confirms with his usual blunt practicality. Yeah, you'll get nothing from your enemies for this. It's, it's not just like, it's boys, obviously, but it's not just boys who died for him. It's his friends. Mm. Lord Rickards Lord Rickards fought at my side in half a dozen battles. His sons died for me at the Whispering Wood. Tiana Willem lands for my enemies, yet now I have to kill my dead friend's father for their sakes. Torin and Eddard Stark were Rob's friends, his companions. You kind of get the sense that they were of an age with Rob. Same as Jane Westerling grew up next to Tion Frey and Willem Lannister. Rob Stark grew up around these Karstark boys. And now he's about to behead the guy who probably watched from the castle walls with beer in hand alongside Ned Stark while his, their sons played together in the castle courtyard below. I think, you know, we, we learn throughout the rest of the story how Rob how Ned Stark made a lot of visits around the north. And I have to imagine this is where the friendship might have been struck up. Of course, it could have been a friendship made on campaign as well. But in a chapter that's so rich in political context, content, rather, George does an amazing job of showing us how, the pers- how personal the political has become. And you know, this is probably an absurd time to mention this, but Rob Stark will kill no more Lannisters in this story. In fact, and I could be wrong, correct me if I'm wrong, Rickard Karstark is the last person that Rob Stark will kill in the series. Father of his friends, fellow soldier, and fellow commander on the battlefield. That's really how bad the Stark cause has gotten at this point. And I know it's crazy to say this, but it's only going to grow worse. Killing the father of your friends to suit your enemies. What a ridiculous shit show this is. A mummer's farce, as they would say in Westeros. How did Rob get here? Step by step like anyone else. Part chance and part choice, the absurd ingredients of tragedy. To live like this is to set your heart on fire, as Stannis' banner makes explicit. It creates broken men. So to do it, you have to be something other than a man. You have to wear the Lord's face, as Ned's children saw, and when Rob puts his crown on, Catelyn thinks he has become a king again. His crown is a cage, a vessel of ice-cold power that demands Rob sacrifice the very feelings that led him to put it on in the first place. All their talking has led him full circle to where he started, the shameful nature of the murder and his responsibility to erase that shame. He killed my honor, Rob says, a statement that's easy to mock. Surely there's more at stake here than that. And this plays right into the image of the Starks as frozen fools who suffer from making propriety their first priority. But given the emotional tide sweeping in here, I think Rob's words are about more than an obsession with status. It's a recognition that honor was all he ever had. His father wasn't king in the north after all. It was Rob's personal charisma, the sense of him as the right guy to follow, that made him king. That sense of being undefeatable. It was those swords they raised for him right here at River Run. He has to get that back or he's nothing. He must be the man he is supposed to be, because otherwise, Rob Stark has no idea who he is. As Maester Vyman later says about Hoster, whose slow death stands in for his grandson's kingdom at this point, this is a battle he cannot win with sword and spear and shield. This is entropy, the ultimate enemy. Rob is grasping after something that can't be grasped, putting it all on the line for something that will never come back. What is broken cannot be remade, and what has been done cannot be undone. The fates have decided. 
I think it's really well said. Rob still wants to be the guy at the end of book one of A Song of Ice and Fire, where he's bringing the corrupt and illegitimate Lancers down on the battlefield, where he seems like he's gaining vengeance for Ned Stark. But this is not book one. It's book three. All good things must come to an end, I guess. Rob, though, has a bit of Stannis in him. He'll never surrender, never give up, to the bitter end and then some. I think the question George is kind of posing to readers here is, what should Rob Stark do? What would you do if you were Rob Stark? As you all know, I don't often engage in alternate universes, but it's hard to see how bending the knee to Joffrey would really work out ultimately for Rob. Sure, Tywin will later talk about serving fire and sword to enemies who are still resisting and then raising up those former enemies who go to their knees. But I'm not sure that Rob would be allowed to surrender here. We're not dealing with a Robert Baratheon figure in the forms of Joffrey and Tywin. Hell, we're not even dealing with an Aegon the Conqueror-like figure who would allow Rob to retain the Lordship of the North. As it stands, Rob Stark has never been defeated on the battlefield and will not be defeated on the battlefield. So thus, he still poses a threat to the Lannister hold on power. What I'm saying is that Rob Stark simply can't take off his crown. I don't believe the Lancers would allow him to do so. For that matter, there's no guarantee that surrender will lead to peace beyond a temporary, beyond a temporary cessation of hostilities, of hostilities. Even before the Red Wedding, the Lancers showed that they were willing to do anything to hold on to their illegitimately gained power. No justice, no peace is a statement used during protests of recent police and political violence against black Americans in the United States. And I really wouldn't want to trivialize that statement by applying it to a fancy context. But I do think that applies in a larger context. It applies almost universally. I don't see how the North simply allows the murder of Ned Stark to go unanswered. That's letting injustice prosper. Of course, there's the emotional context for Rob in this chapter. But it's a very Ares II-like situation from the beginning of Robert's Rebellion where surrender legitimizes illegitimate seizures of power and the murder of lords paramount at the whim of the king. Again, Rob Stark isn't making that case in this chapter, but I think it's somewhat implied, as well as a reasonable reading of the politics of Westeros, at least within a feudal context. But even if few people hold to justice, Rob Stark himself still has a vision of justice, and that justice is about to come crashing right on down on Rickard Karstark's neck. Yes, after all that buildup, the execution itself moves pretty quickly, as if to reflect how inevitable it is now. The night's dark dance is ending, as George writes, framing the whole event as musical, a sad song like the reigns of Castamere. The rhythm of it, the structure, is so clear. They stand in the storm, all that are left of the men and women who raised their swords for Rob as their king. The leaves fall with the rain, as if the trees are drowning, the old gods of Rob's kingdom fading away into winter. The rain falls too on Karstark's men, their corpses slumping against the wall. There's barely any difference between the living and the dead. We're all in the underworld together. Rob steps forward to execute Rickard Karstark by his own hand, as Ned would have wanted. And I love Rickard's bitter response to that. For that much, I thank you. But not else. <laughs> At the beginning of the story, Ned's mantra that the man who passes the sentence must swing the sword was framed as the epitome of justice. This is what separates him from other authority figures. As Ned said, many lords hide behind paid executioners and forget what death is. Catelyn makes that same case to Jane later in the chapter. Tywin killing from afar through proxies, just as he does with the Red Wedding, only cheapens death. But Rickard makes that, that ethos seem so small, a feudal gesture that does nothing to change the realities of Rob's situation. Just as the families of those dead squires won't be Rob's friends just because he executes Lord Karstark, Doing the job himself won't bring back the Karstark soldiers. On the one hand, doing the right thing with no reward is the essence of heroism. 
On the other hand, Rob has responsibilities that extend beyond these performances, and honor won't help him there. Rickard begs for mercy, which he didn't even bother to do before. His plea is rooted in kinship. We're blood relatives, and the gods curse kinslayers. Honestly, I think this is bullshit. Rob and Rickard are very distant relations. If that counted as kinslaying, all these interrelated noble families would never be able to fight each other. Robert was Rhaegar's second cousin, a lot closer. But no one ever called Robert a kinslayer, not even Rhaegar's own siblings. I think this is just another example of Karstark seizing on any argument that makes him look better and Rob look worse. He'll never acknowledge the grievous harm wrought by his own decisions, his own actions. In fact, George himself said that Rickard Karstark was full of shit, so well spotted by you, sir. Because in a 2001 So Spake Martin, George addressed some of the nuances of kinslaying and brought up the example of Rickard Karstark. The other factor, which you haven't raised, is a degree of kinship. Killing a parent is probably worse than killing a sibling, but either one is a lot worse than killing a distant cousin. Lord Karstark was stretching that aspect of it when he tried to accuse Rob of kinslaying. But of course, he was hoping to save his head. I, of course, if you think about it, we're all ultimately kin. If you go far enough back, we all have this common bond of brotherhood or sisterhood or just a common humanity. But the reality is that Rob isn't violating the cultural prohibition against kinslaying here. Of interest, though, is that George also confirms what you're saying, that Rickard Karstark is trying to preserve his life here. I think that's interesting because as we've been arguing throughout Clash and Storm, Rickard has seemingly been on a suicide mission to join his dead sons in the grave. But now faced with imminent death, Rickard Karstark changes course. He doesn't actually want to die. On some level, to get kind of dark here for a moment, there's an esoteric fascination with death. Mm -hmm. As a boy and young man, heroic death to me seemed like a good and noble thing. Do it on the battlefield, fight and die to save someone else's life or others' lives. But when faced with the actuality of death, it's far less appealing, and the idea of living on grows more and more appealing. It's weird how that works. The older you grow, the closer you get to death, the more that you long to cling for life. Rickard Karstark may have had a death wish in the past, but now faced with the reality of death, he tries to avoid it one last time. It's understandable for Rickard Karstark not to want to have to face death. But really, the man shouldn't have murdered children. Right? You can see where that's leading. And no, yeah, I mean, I agree. I think, you know, a lot of Freudian ideas have been discredited or just have fallen from favor, but the idea of the death drive, that there's something in us, a psychological need that acts in counterpoint to the desire to, you know, have children and create peace for ourselves, that there's something in us that just loves destruction and stagnation, and we express that in various ways. I think that's probably true, and I think you can see that refracted through a lot of characters in The Song of Ice and Fire, the large and the small. And for me, the more impactful argument that Rickard makes is that, hey, I rose up against the Mad King for Ned, and I rose up against Joffrey for you. The literal kinship might be distant, but these two men were comrades in arms until very recently. That's the betrayal that really stings. Friends turn to enemies, the subject of this chapter. Rob correctly points out that this bond didn't prevent Rickard from rebelling against him, so why should it stop the execution now? But the pain still lingers. Garrett at the beginning of the story was a stranger to Ned, if not to us. Rickard is no stranger. To kill him feels like a curse, no matter what the gods do. As with Theon executing Farlin in Clash of Kings, it takes three swings for Rob to remove Rickard's head. And this takes away any feeling of swift, sure justice, as Lame Lothar Frey calls it, showcasing instead the pure ugliness of the act. Theon, too, was Rob's friend, until suddenly he wasn't. How Rob feels now, heartsick and hating himself, would be how he felt if he actually made it home and beheaded Theon. Doing justice has lost its savor. 
Rob stands alone, isolated by power, responsibility, and his crown. His heart is broken, long before Rue stabs him in the heart and makes that literal. Hmm. And I think, you know, in the throne show, the scene comes in season three, and the musical, the musical motif that plays over Rob Stark executing Rickard Karstark is what might seem to be strange, but it is the Greyjoy theme that we see in season two. At the time, some fans were annoyed by the usage of this, mo- of this musical motif when they thought the Stark theme should have, been, should have played over the act instead. And I think you've identified correctly why the choice was made, or maybe I'm being really overgenerous to the, uh, to the showrunners and writers of Game of Thrones, because there is a parallel in the story between what Rob and Theon are doing, even down to the three strokes it takes to remove the head. And ultimately, the execution doesn't bring Rob or Theon peace. There are stark differences, of course. The unexecuted Farland, or Roger Cassell in the show, for, to put it, mildly unjust reasons. Rob's execution of Rickard is within the feudal Westerosi custom and within the, nor- the within the stark norm. But like you've been saying so well, the objective reality of the situation matters less than the emotional resonance of the moment. Rob Stark executed a Northman, killed someone who wasn't involved in his father's death, and had nothing to do with Sansa's imprisonment and the coup in King's Landing. It's hard not to feel the loneliness of Rob Stark after the execution, how he flings this, how he flings the poleaxe away. It's almost like he's kind of wondering who's going to betray him next. So even before the Red Wedding comes, Rob Stark and readers are primed for the next shoe to drop. And those shoes keep coming in the next chapter with, quote unquote, news from the North, and then news from Duskendale, and finally the Red Wedding itself. But before all that, there's one final scene in this chapter, mother and daughter. In-law. Mother and daughter-in-law. There we go. Yes. So far, this has been a chapter mostly about Rob versus Rickard, dueling visions of martial masculinity. Catalin's been mostly just our POV on it, checking in with her thoughts sometime as we go. But now that changes, as the chapter ends with a scene between Catalin and Jane Westerling, discussing matters that are left primarily to women. This locks us back into Catalin's personal journey, how she interacts with the events unfolding around her. She is always trying to play her role, even as the context in which that role would make sense breaks down. Jane is in a similar position, only younger and less experienced. She needs help from Catelyn, despite technically outranking her. Just as Rob the person is increasingly alienated from Rob the king, to the point where Catelyn describes them like they're different people, Jane doesn't feel like a queen. She doesn't like being called your grace. How ironic that Rob gave up so much to make Jane his queen, only for it to feel like a burden to her, like a mask she's being forced to wear. Catelyn insists at first on calling her your grace, which is a signature Catelyn move, sticking to the script, not because she's using it to gain advantage like a lot of other people do, but because she sincerely, maybe naively, believes that it will lead to good outcomes. She wants Jane to get used to people calling her that, because that's how it seems real, right? People thinking you're the queen is what makes you one. But Jane isn't just Catelyn's queen. She's Catelyn's daughter-in-law, her new surrogate daughter figure with Brienne on the road with Jaime. Jane has come to Catelyn for marriage advice, which you might think in a happier timeline, ah, oh, this might have happened with Sansa and Arya. They might have come to her for advice. And we see here that Jane is not a schemer. She is sincere, direct, and very honest about what she needs from Catelyn. What she needs is a way of getting through to Rob. Intimacy, intimacy is supposed to be the heart of marriage, but Rob has all his walls up right now. He's not eating, he's not taking care of his clothes, and he's not talking to her about what's going on inside his head. I think it's it's interesting that in comparison and contrast to Tyrion three, where you have another queen in the form of Cersei at the small council, mm-hmm. how different Catelyn treats Jane versus how Tywin treats his own daughter, the the Queen of Westeros, and that contrast is really 
important and, and, and pivotal because Catelyn is attempting to empower Jane Westerling to act like the queen, whereas Tywin consistently saps the power that Cersei and really all of his children have. Interestingly, in addition here, Rob is trying to figure out his battle plan. That's what he's actually doing when he's looking at these maps here and how his plan, how he's planning to re-enter the North. As we're going to find out in the Storm of Swords Catelyn 5, Rob does eventually figure out a plan to take the North and Moat Caelan, specifically with a two-pronged attack on the castle that we'll talk at significant length when we get to Catelyn 5 and 6. In his own analysis, Rob realizes that he can bypass Moat Caelan and get some of his force north of the neck by relying on Howland Reed to bypass the Ironman of Moat Caelan. Of interest to me, though, is there's this mention of Rob writing a letter and then burning it. What was in that letter that Rob wrote and then burned? There's there's tons of possibilities. Was this a letter to Tywin Lannister offering terms? Was it a letter to Balin Greyjoy offering alliance and power sharing in the North? Was it maybe the letter that we eventually see in A Storm Swords Catelyn Five, which legitimizes Jon Snow as Jon Snark? Not John Snark, <laughs> as John Stark, King of the North, or successor to King of the North. George doesn't provide a definitive answer on what Rob Stark was writing, but it's a small mystery in the book that remains unsolved. Again, if you are around George R. R. Martin within the next 30 days or so, please ask him about this, all right? I would love to know the answer. But even though Rob is not simply sinking into, into depression and withdrawing from the world, that is the present emotional moment for Rob and Gene smart as she is, sees that. Yeah, she recognizes the signs of despair and considers it her responsibility to help. She loves him, and he's in pain. What can I do if he won't let me in? It takes courage for Jane to come here and confess her helplessness and fear to an older woman who is basically a stranger. And I think it's telling on reread that Jane is not having this conversation with her own mother. It's interesting to consider that Catalan's mother died when she was young. She thinks of her father as her primary parent and role model. She even thinks it would be Hoster she would ask for advice in Jane's place. She doesn't even consider a world in which her mother was alive to ask for advice. Nope, it's always dad. It's always been dad. Jane has a mother, but doesn't seem to trust her with this conversation. Catelyn has to reach across these gaps like she did with Brienne after Renly's death. Once Catelyn understands why Jane has come to her as a daughter as much as a queen, she is able to speak honestly from the heart. She says that the wisest move is often nothing at all. What's happening inside Rob is his own responsibility. Jane can't force him to cheer up. He has to learn how to handle this. Beyond letting Rob know that she loves him and is there for him, there really isn't anything Jane can do. Moreover, Catelyn says, there's something in these Northmen that make them want to be alone sometimes. Ned always needed time with the heart tree, and Catelyn's very first chapter opens with her being uncomfortable there. She says that winter always comes, on the inside as well as the outside. And that applies not only to Starks, but real relationships in the real world. Intimacy is never 100% complete. That person lying next to you will always be partially a stranger, a mask over half of their face. Two hearts may beat as one, but part of Ned's soul was always going to belong to that tree. Catelyn says that the key to making her marriage work was understanding that even the private face was part of the man she loved. If she took that away, he wouldn't be that person anymore. It's a classic Catelyn moment in which she finds happiness within limits. She's always the adult looking back on childhood, rarely more so than here. But even more perfect for her character, I think, is how she then seamlessly shifts back from the personal to the political, telling Jane on her way out the door, ah, there is something she has to do as queen, and that is get pregnant as soon as possible. You have a good heart, but the Game of Thrones, as she thinks at the end of the chapter, is more about the hips. And this is such a, a funny, delicate little moment in which both Jane and Catelyn have to confirm that Jane is fucking Rob's brains out without anyone saying that. 
<laughs> Jane instead has to say we try several times a day and blushes. <laughs> Despite the euphemisms, real emotion gets through, a connection between these two. Jane promises to name her children Eddard and Brandon, after those Catelyn has lost. You can't bring the dead back. The others and their whites show us what it would look like. Let me try that again. You can't bring the dead back. The others and their whites show us what it would look like. All you can do is have kids to honor them, keep the cycle going. It's peace of mind, Jane offers Catelyn, a chance at a future. And that hurts like hell on reread, because not only do we know that the Red Wedding is coming for Rob and Catelyn, but that the supposed fertility potion Jane's mom is making for her is actually preventing her from getting pregnant, per the deal Sibel, her mother, struck with Tywin. She's an opposing archetype of motherhood, cruel and dishonest, where Catelyn was kind and true. This scene feels on first read like a break from the dread, a shelter from the storm. On reread, it's just the icing on the tragedy cake. This scene is equivalent to Sansa hanging out with the young Tyrell cousins, seeing their youth, their naivete, their innocence, and their hope. And in both cases, there are plots behind the scenes to ruin the happiness and hope. I think that's so well said. I remember feeling when I first read these books that maybe Rob had a chance here. Maybe the North, maybe the war can still be won. Maybe Rob can still get back into the North. I had these thoughts while knowing that the context of these thoughts, that the context I was thinking this is that Catelyn's saying that Jane will give birth to children. In retrospect, it's weird to connect Rob potentially having children with the desire to see Rob start continuing the war. Creating and giving life in order to continue ending life, that's that's a strange thought, I'll admit. But it's one that was prevalent within a medieval context. But ultimately, it's not to be. Sabelle Spicer, of course, being the worst. And as Tywin said in the last chat, in the previous Tyrion chapter, Rob Stark will never reproduce. Life is about to be stolen from almost everyone in this chapter. We start with dead children, we progress to a dead lord, and conclude with the promise of life. But it's a false promise. The tragedy of the Starks is about to unfold in the worst possible way. To think, the blows to Rob Stark are not nearly done too before the final end. At this point, you kind of want to tell, yell at George to stop, dude, he's already dead, or he's about to be dead. But the wheels must grind on, the red must run. Yes, beautifully said. That 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 sense of, of clockwork and wheels turning to deliver those Starks to the fate comes through so strongly on reread at the end of this chapter, as you realize that, yeah, even, even that potential way out, even that exit is going to be slammed shut. So moving into foreshadowing and groundwork, Rickard sends out his men here, the Karstark men, into the wild, and they will come up frequently as we go through other POVs in the Riverlands, Jamie's chapters, and especially Arya's chapters. She meets some of them in Stony Sept, and the dynamic is interestingly kind of similar to this chapter, in that those Karstark men have committed atrocities, but they're begging for mercy, and it's that same sense of, of, of no good options and just the wretched horror of all of this that comes through in that Arya chapter. Yeah, I mean, you have all these guys who are just clawing for a higher station in life to become the potential heir to the heir to Carhold and marrying Alice Carstark. Well, one of the potential heirs to, to Carhold by marrying Alice Carstark. But ultimately, it, it leads to, to ruin and damnation for them. Though I do think it's a really nice note that Arya offers them water. It's one of those few moments that Arya is kind of like stepping away from that vengeance paradigm that she's kind of put herself, her own self into and then offering mercy to to these folks who are, to, who are up in these these crow's cages that we're going to find out in Linda. It's Arya 4, right? Is where we find that? Is it Arya 5? I think 5? it's Arya 5, but we'll see. Yeah. Okay. And, and some of those Karstark men, I did reference this in the main episode, but some of those Karstark men will participate in the Red Wedding. Rob in this chapter wonders what the Karstark foot will do when they find out what happened to Rickard. Well, a lot of them are going to die at Duskendale, but the survivors return to exact their vengeance on Rob at the Red Wedding itself. Yes. I think it's, uh, as you were saying, 
the uh, separation of the Karstark men ends up paying big dividends for Roos because he can kind of get get them on his side. And the, the Karstark politics play out in a lot of interesting ways going forward as the rest of the family and their soldiers have to react to what Rickard has done here. And we're going to see that with, with Alice Karstark, who comes up in this chapter not by name, but she's mentioned as Lord Rickard has offered the hand of his daughter to uh, whatever man brings him the head of Jamie Lannister. And George was uh, laying a seed, I'm sure, with not an exact idea of how that would play out. But when you get to a dance with dragons, he does introduce Alice Karstark in person, uh, trying to, to get away from her evil uncles and appealing to Jon Snow for help. And she does get married, but to a wildling, probably the last thing her father <laughs> ever could have imagined. Oh, man. Can you imagine Richard Karstark's like, reaction right. from the grave of, of, uh, of Alice Karstark marrying the Then I think that's... That's something. I, I think the, the marriage with Sigourn and Alice is one of the most beautiful scenes in, in A Song of a Spider. George writes excellent wedding scenes for, for whatever reason. He does a good job with that one especially. And, and, I, and I do think you're right that George didn't have an exact idea of what he was good, going to do with Alice Karstark, but he realized that he probably needed one more nail in Jon John Snow's coffin, so to speak, uh, in, in him playing the Game of Thrones in the North. And so he shows up with Alice Karstark. So Alice Karstark shows up at Castle Black um, and Jon Snow intervenes in the like once again in the politics of the North and of course sets himself up for that final end game. Cause that's, that's in John's ninth chapter in, in, in a dance with dragons. And he's only a few chapters short of when the, uh, his actual own sort of red wedding occurs at the end of that book. Yes. That's a great comparison. George plays out similar structures with the Starks, but with a, uh, with very different details along the way. So going into a theory and discussion, there's a, a topic that we haven't really touched on, but kind of comes up frequently when it comes to this chapter and the adaptation of this chapter in the show. And that's the question of whether Rob really did the right thing here. So I wanted to ask you that. What do you think? Did Rob make the right move in executing Ricard Karstark? Was there a better option that he uh, didn't take? Well, let's 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 examine the options first. And they're presented somewhat um, not well by Edmure Tully, but better by Catelyn Stark, which is basically execute him release him and pardon him or hold him hostage. Those are basically the three options that are articulated by the different people in the, in the, in Rob's family. So the execute him is the position ultimately that Rob does. The release him is the position that Rickard Karstar kind of takes, like just release me, just pardon me, just like you did your mom. And then the third option I think is, is the more interesting one, which is to hold him hostage to the good behavior of, of, of the, of his, the Karstark band and to bring them back into the fold. I think Rob did the right thing here, both morally and practically as well. By this point in the story, the Karstark cavalry has all departed. There's no, like you were saying so well, the horse is out of the barn. You can't shut the the, the barn door now at this point. So from practical terms, I think you have you, you have to execute Rickard Karstark. You're not actually going to bring the cavalry back in to work with Rob Stark for his good behavior. Now, I think the, the idea is whether that Harry and Karstark would, would then be on good behavior. But as we're going to find out, he's taken prisoner by the Lancers yet again at the Battle of Duskendale. So he's kind of a moot point. And then, of course, to get back to the those complicated Karstark politics, the, uh, his, the his uncle's attempt to get him killed so that Alice becomes the heir and they're trying to marry Alice to uh, to their to his cut to their his her rather blah, 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 to her cousin. So I, I think practically, I think Rob did the right thing. Morally, I think he did the right thing as well. And I, and I think he's doing well. Let me back that up. In a feudal medieval Westerosi context, I think Rob Stark did the right thing and following his his father's behavior and, and being and carrying out executions personally. I think that is something that has made the Starks very um, sympathetic to readers, that they are the ones who carry out their own executions. They don't have a headsman or others that carry them out for them. I also think, too, that it continues the precedent set that you can't get away with the murder of children in this in this story. Now, my feelings, my personal feelings about the death penalty are 
very complicated and complex um, for, and, and don't exactly apply here. So I have to kind of look at it from a larger moral perspective of doing the right thing on a, on a moral side, but also within a Westerosi context as well. I think my own perspective is that, you know, the death penalty is not a good or just way of performing justice in the world. Um, that might seem weird given my, my profession, but, um, <laughs> Let's get real esoteric here. But uh, but I also think like in a West Rossi context, there's not like a prison to send people. You can't send, I guess you could send Rickard Karstark to the wall. Is that an option there? I'm not sure. But I think you can't also let the idea that child, that you can commit child murder and get away with it fester within the Northern Army. I think we see in, especially time in Lannister's Army of the West in the Riverlands, that they commit mass atrocities because they are being allowed to do so and really being ordered to by Tywin Lannister. But a lot of that behavior kind of festers and gets much, much worse and becomes much more brutal and much more small and brutal at the same time when we get especially into A Feast for Crows and all these separate bands of people are doing lots of terrible deeds and murders and killings and rapes, uh, not directed by those in charge, but having been given the permission structure by those in charge to do that. So I think that Rob Stark is correct and morally correct within a Westerosi context of of um, of having Rickard Karstark executed here. But I don't know. What do you think? you think he should have been held hostage to, to Harry and Karstark's good behavior in this theoretical sense? Or is there something else that you would have done if you were Rob Stark? I think, I mean, I think there's not much practical gain in any direction, unfortunately. I think that's how Rickard has arranged things. It does work very differently in the show when it's set up that the Karstark may only desert Rob after he's executed Rickard. So there's, uh, you know, I think the show uh, kind of reduced Rob to the more honorable fool uh, image of the Starks. And I think there's there's a little more complexity here in that, yeah, that the, the Karstark men are already gone. And that, as he, as he says, as the Blackfish points out, there's, you know, there's, there's no emotional gain to get from the families of the dead. They're not going to support you just because you killed Rickard. So I think it, in practical concerns for me, it comes down to keeping the Northern Coalition together. There was that great bit from Catalan this chapter where she sees men moving away from the Karstarks as though treason is something you could catch with a curse or a whispered word or something like that. And that is a legit concern for Rob that if he lets, Ricard get away with this it, it could uh, lead to a drop in morale a drop in support from the men he needs and I think it's even though Ricard tries to make the comparison between himself and Catelyn and it's just it's different just because Catelyn is Rob's mother and even someone who was furious about her letting Jamie go could not reasonably expect Rob to execute his mother like that would be direct clear kinslaying in a way that Rob executing Ricard is not and I think Rob managed that about as well as he could in the moment in Catelyn too comparing it to his own uh, act of love for Jane Westerling and uh, making clear that he condemns the action while still loving Catelyn personally. I think he played that about as well as he possibly could. I think pardoning Rickard would be more politically poisonous and would lead to even loyalists like the great John wondering if maybe this this whole thing is coming down. You just encourage other other personal vendettas because you know there are other lords in Rob's coalition who feel that way about the Lannisters. So I think I think he picks his best option. I just think it's it's not an option that's going to remotely save the day for him. And I kind of like how George closes out that that possibility and kind of re- reduces it to these more intimate stakes for Rob. Because I think George is trying to have that balance where he shows how Rob's and Catelyn's actions contribute to the situation, but also suggests that this is this is well beyond any of them. And their gestures become almost more existential. Like I was saying about Rob, this is mm. this is as much Rob trying to demonstrate what kind of person he is as much as it is trying to for him trying to produce a given outcome. And I think it's it's very poignant in that regard, but even if there were no emotions on the line, I think this is I think this is his least bad option. Won't say best option because I don't think there's a good one, but least bad one. I think you're right. And I think too, 
when you look at like the Starks, like there is a reason why the Northern Clansmen march for the Ned's daughter in, in, in A Dance with Dragons. There is a reason why the Starks remain, the Stark name itself remains powerful. And that is, I think, in part, in large part because of Ned Stark's actions and because of Rob Stark's actions to a lesser degree, since Rob Stark didn't have that long as Lord of Winterfell and King of the North. But Ned Stark produced an example of justice that was worth aspiring to, that was worth being loyal to. And that is something that I think creates a long-lasting degree of respect for the Starks and degree of loyalty for the Starks themselves. And I, so I do think they practically, in the long term, I think it helps the Starks, even though this is never brought up as the reason why the, the Northern Mountain Clansmen are marching. There is the sense that a lot of these guys are marching for the Stark name and the Stark cause because they seem... They seem better than the than they than the mean of Westerosi lords, mm-hmm. right? You would prefer to have the Starks in charge of the North than you would prefer to have the Karstarks or the Umbers, and especially you wouldn't have want to have the Boltons there in charge, as we're going to find out in a, in a Dance with Dragons. But yeah, it's 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 a hard topic. I think you're 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 absolutely correct in that Rob doesn't gain really much from this action, but I think you put it really well in in the, in the main portion of the episode where you talked about how that is. is this is kind of a heroic act to still do something despite it not having a positive, a necessary positive benefit for you. By attaining that, attaining that cosmic sense of justice is something of a good that we as readers look at and we're like, yeah, this seems like justice. Whether it is in objective reality or actuality, I don't know. I wish I, I wish I had better answers. You know, I wish all of us did. Exactly. That's what Rob wants too. He's doing what Ned would want him to do, but. Rob has associated Ned with this feeling of justice and a sense of completion and satisfaction he would get for doing it. And that's just not there. And, you know, maybe it was never there for Ned either, really. I think, you know, he was never in this situation exactly. But, you know, part of the Lord's face is making what you're doing seem unquestionable or unchallenged or that you don't have any conflicts about it. But Ned was a POV, unlike Rob, and we know he was conflicted about a lot of what he had to do. So, I mean, that's, that's part of growing up, even for those of us who don't end up, you know, stabbed at our uncle's wedding. Part of it is realizing that as an adult is realizing that adults were, I think, with the best of intentions, lying about what it's like to be an adult and, <laughs> and kind of pretending that there's this moment of transition when things make sense. And I, I don't think that moment really does exist. And I think that's what Rob is confronting. Like, oh, it's not. This isn't easier. This doesn't make sense like I assumed it would. And I still have to do it. It just gets harder the older that you get. That's something that I've learned in my life. And mm-hmm. I think that's something that Rob in his young life is learning here. Although it's his young life is about to stay young, forever. Wow, that's really dark. Yeah. So this this is a this is a, an excellent chapter, but I do think that is going to wrap us up for this analysis of a Storm of Swords, Catlin Three. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you have the chance, please rate and view us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere you find our podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F or shoot us an email at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. And you can find me at Quentin on Twitter. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon, Red Ralu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Maribald, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Sir Way, of course, Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Sam Kay, Wisdom Benjicott, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bool and De Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Fray Pies, Hodinus, a prostitute, Lady Silverwing, Kaboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, 
Sir Keith of House Corbray, wielder of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Lady Mira Reed, wielder of Dark Sister, Slayer of Tinfoil, Sir Will of the Anarcho-Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Septon T-Bone the Low Septon, Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids, Lady Veronica, who was abandoned the orphans at the end of the crossroads to become the Queen of Memes, Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirate, Lady Joan, Lady Ranger of the Frostfangs, Sydney of House Quo, Princess of the Friendly Black Hotties in the Summer Isles, Random, Fierce Protector of Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things, Sir, Lady, Jordan, Defender of the God's Eye, Lord Peter, not Peter, Drinker of Strong Wine and Lord Commander of the Flat Planetos Society, Lady of Rainy Afternoons, Lady Ken of House Motown, Goddess of Sips and Wine, Sir Andrew of H-Town, and our newest High Lord, Archmaster Hugh of the Tower, whose rod and ring are of tinfoil. A wonderful <laughs> title, and thank you so much as always to our High Lords and Ladies, and a special welcome to Archmaster Hugh of the Tower. Absolutely. Thank you folks so much. And yes, a warm welcome to Archmaster Hugh of the Tower, who's rod and ringer tinfoil. Man, I wish I could say that one every week. So join us next week for a Storm of Swords, Jamie 3, in which you gotta hand it to Jamie. Oh, ho, ho. you knew he was going to go there, folks. You knew he was going to go there. He knows how to use his sword. Unfortunately, he will not be coming with Brienne down to King's Landing. At least not yet. You're throwing out all this A-plus material here. You got to save some of your beautiful wordplay for the episode itself. <laughs> you you got to make me smack my forehead and groan throughout the episode itself, or it's not a Jamie episode. Oh, and so it's excited for yet another Jamie episode to do with you, sir. And not just because you don't like Jamie Lancer, but because... <laughs> This is an excellent Jamie chapter. I this think is true. This is the one that's uh, this the, the, the what well, pretty much all the rest of the, all the Jamie chapters are bangers for me. But I think these ones are particularly objectively good. So it's uh, yeah, so much fun. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you to all of our patrons for supporting us, and we'll see you next week for a Storm of Swords Jamie three. <laughs>